Welcome to another episode of the AABIP podcast. During the podcast episodes, we discuss unique and often controversial topics in interventional pulmonology. The topics discussed often do not have a high-quality evidence base, and we seek opinion from our invited experts to learn their approach in specific clinical scenarios. The views expressed are exclusively those of the speaker and not necessarily endorsed by the AABIP. For today's podcast, I am honored and privileged to be in the presence of Robbie Samstein. Robbie is an assistant professor of radiation oncology at Mount Sinai. Robbie, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me. It's an honor to be here. Thank you. So with you today, we're going to basically discuss a radiation oncology oncologist's message to an interventional pulmonologist, basically things that you guys would like us to do uh, or do better. And uh, for this topic, do you have any uh, conflicts of interest that we should know about? No, nothing relevant, just related to immunotherapy, but I think we'll avoid that today. Okay, so let's get started. Uh, when we do uh, a staging EBUS, at least the way I do it, uh, I obviously we start from the contralateral hilum, so an N3 lymph node when there's a mass or an audio, and if the con- uh, contralateral, sorry, mediastinum, and if the contralateral mediastinum is not involved, um, we skip sampling the contralateral hilum. Uh, There are some who also sample the contralateral hilum if the contralateral mediastinum is not involved, uh, but definitely do it if the contralateral mediastinum is involved. Now, the question for you is, does sampling the contralateral hilum help you guys at all in deciding radiation field in someone who may need EBRT? So I think, yeah, particularly in the context of you know, the concurrent chemoradiation patients or the stage three patients where we're treating the mediastinum and often, and certainly the ipsilateral hilum, that's where this, I think, becomes most relevant. You know, I would say anecdotally, it's, you know, and, and I think the data supports that there's, it, it's pretty limited occurrence, the contralateral hilum being involved, and we wouldn't typically treat it because we only treat um, in chemoradiation cases the involved lymph node area. So we, the, the risk is that it, if it's not sampled and there is anything there, we wouldn't treat that area um, if there's no sort of pathological evidence or radiologic evidence of involvement of the contralateral hilum. But that being said, I think, uh, you know, when the contralateral mediastinum is involved, I think the risk is fairly low, and the toxicity involved in treating the contralateral hilum goes up significantly because of the dosimetry of sort of treating both lungs. Got it. So treating the contralateral hilum has uh, more toxicity because you're extending the field um, into the other lung, and you would not treat the contralateral hilum unless there is radiological or confirmed uh, cytological evidence of involvement with tumor. Is that correct? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, often, even if there's, you know, um, ambiguous radiologic, we'll sort of, that's when we'll come to you and ask because of that extra associated toxicity that we're very hesitant to go contralaterally as much as possible. So I guess from an interventional pulmonologist's perspective, I think what we should be doing is if the contralateral mediastinum is involved, then consider sampling the contralateral hilum. But in every case where there is some sort of radiological, that is CT or PET, evidence of uh, suspicion uh, in the contralateral hilum, we should be sampling that too. Yeah, I think that would be extremely helpful. Okay, so let's uh, go on to the next question, uh, which is, should we be performing an EBUS 
prior to every SBRT for a lung nodule. Now, um, of course, if, if the PET scan or the CT scan shows a hyalur node that is suspicious or may possibly be involved, you want to confirm whether that's a false positive or not before doing SBRT with an EBUS. That's understandable. But I'm talking about a clinical N0 hyalur. In those cases, should we be performing SPR, uh, sorry, EBUS prior to every SBRT since uh, you guys cannot sample the hyalur? Absolutely. So I think, you know, technically, and my sort of standard answer would be, uh, you know, I feel pretty strongly that we do have to sort of properly stage our patients. And the only way to do that is with, you know, EVOS. And so for any patient, almost all patients that we're doing SBRT, I think doing bronchoscopic staging of the lymph nodes is is important. I think the only exceptions where, where I think the data supports that perhaps sort of the PET is strong enough is the sort of very small lesion stage one maze that are very peripheral where there's limited risk and the PET does a good job of detecting hyalur disease. Um, but for most patients, I think we need to stage bronchoscopically. The only caveat to that that I would add is just the patients that are going for SBRT are generally sort of the poor performance status sort of exceptions of the rule because surgery still remains the standard of care. And so there, you know, even though I, I, you know, I think the right thing to do is to stage patients properly. I think sometimes we get into situations where there are patients that may not be the best candidate for any treatment and it's sort of limiting the sort of limiting the interventions in some cases sometimes leads to sort of skipping steps, whether that's the right thing to do, I think always needs to be discussed as a larger group. Mm-hmm. So our guidelines, you know, we look at NCCN, uh, ACCP, ESTS, and depending on which guideline we're looking at, we routinely stage the mediastinum for uh, any even peripheral lung nodule that is two centimeters or three centimeters or more, depending on which guideline we're, lo- we're looking at. Uh, my personal practice is if I'm referring someone for SBRT, uh, and it's a peripheral nodule, two centimeters or more, I would always stage the mediastinum given the 5 to 10% risk of uh, occult hyalur or mediastinal disease. I agree. Yeah. Anything, you know, it's, it's only those 1As sort of less than even less than, less than two, maybe even less than one centimeter, the really small lesions that are peripheral where I'd even consider it. Absolutely. Okay. So let's uh, dive into something a little more contemporary, but controversial. So we all agree that in non-op candidates with stage one lung cancer, SPRT currently remains the standard of care. We have pockets around the country where uh, interventional radiologists are performing uh, percutaneous ablative therapies, whether it's MWA, RFA, or some other technology. Uh, you may be aware that uh, you know, uh, in the interventional pulmonary world, we are diving into bronchoscopic ablation. Now, we have only small case series in uh, humans on RFA, but uh, there's animal data on uh, MWA, ongoing studies on it, ongoing studies on PDT, BLIT, which is a laser-mediated ablation uh, mechanism, uh, as well as thermal vapor ablation. So the rationale for bronchoscopic ablation for us is that with the better navigational bronchoscopic technologies like the robot, we're able to get to more nodules and able to get to the center of more nodules. And uh, we don't have to puncture the visceral pleura. So there's uh, almost... uh, no pneumothorax risk associated with it. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on that. Uh, where do you see SPRT, uh, say, five to 10 years from now? What changes are coming up in, in your field in SPRT to 
minimize toxicity, treat more patients who have previously had radiation, et cetera, uh, so that you know, SPRT remains where it is right now, the standard of care in non-op patients. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it's, so the technology is certainly to sort of start with the last question, the technology is certainly always evolving, although I think some of the major breakthroughs have already been made and there's only so conformal we can get. I mean, I think the technology has improved where we're able to sort of focus our radiation in terms of the high dose region with SBRT down to sort of the millimeter range in terms of where precisely where we plan to treatment treat. Um, and we've gotten better at sort of targeting in terms of, you know, gating with breathing or tracking breathing in order to sort of limit the amount of area that you're treating. Mm -hmm. So I think there are advances. There's perhaps a, li a few more advances coming in the future. Um, one of the things that's sort of only being used at, an, at a limited, in a limited scale right now is proton radiation. It's used in, in lots of other cancer types. It has the advantage where it has a greater dose fall off. And there are some reports of using a sort of a proton-based approach to, for SBRT. I'm not sure how, how sort of generalizable it will be. And it really depends on the particular anatomical situation. So in my experience, I think there was one patient, particularly with a very peripheral chest wall sort of lesion that I referred for proton. SBRT. But for the most part, I, I'm not sure they can do much better than what we can do with photons. Mm -hmm. That being said, I, I mean, I think there's a lot of potential and definitely a role for these sort of localized treatments with either percutaneous, but I think I'm even more attracted to the sort of bronchoscopic based approaches for, you know, the lesions that can be reached um, due to the limited uh, risk of, num of pneumothorax. I think the advantage is radiation is always going to have a dose cloud. There's always going to be a region that's going to be getting perhaps not the high dose, but a limited dose. And that's where you develop, you sort of have associated radiologic findings. We always see fibrosis. And in some cases, in a minority of patients, you have associated symptomatic um, symptoms from, the, from that associated fibrosis, such as radiation pneumonitis. So you know, I think there's always going to be an advantage sometimes when you can give something from inside and really lose the sort of heat or microwave or laser to the, to the lesion itself. The only other thing I would say is I think they're always going to be complementary. I think, you know, those sorts of approaches probably are particularly good, you know, particularly with RFA, which is what I've had experience seeing, are particularly good for really small lesions where you know the, the needle or the heat is only going to reach so far. And so for small lesions, you can achieve sort of a good, so to speak, dosimetry or heat profile and, and cover the entire lesion. So I think there's always going to be, you know, it'll be a group discussion in terms of, you know, what's the right approach for that particular lesion, whether it's peripheral, whether it's central, whether it can be re reached bronchoscopically. Mm -hmm. And um, what are the lesions that you find challenging to treat from an SPRT perspective? Is there a location or a size threshold? Exactly. Or yeah. So, you know, generally we're very comfortable treating peripheral lesions in terms of the dosimetry. We can treat it with a single fraction or three fraction regimens that are associated with, you know, very low risk of toxicity and sort of excellent local control, greater than 90% and some reports greater than 95% percent sort of long-term local control. It's once you start getting closer to the sort of what we call the prox proximal bronchial trees, sort of the sort of central lesions, 
where we start to get a little more hesitant and that's where you can see extreme toxicities. Mm -hmm. um, and that's where we have to start spreading out the, the dose over more fractions, five fractions, sometimes 10 fractions. And the local control also goes down as we sort of adjust to that. And that's where I think there can be a role certainly for, you know, bronch those are certainly the lesions that I would imagine would be accessible bronchoscopically as well. Okay, so uh, let's talk about another thing that is near and dear to interventional pulmonologists, uh, stents and valves. So our stents, the metal ones, are made of nitinol, uh, as are our valves. How does placing a stent or a valve affect your uh, radiation planning, and, and what should we know about this? Yeah, so, I mean, it's relatively simple nowadays in terms of how we do it. So I would say there's, you know, three aspects of it when we're thinking about this a stent and, and how it helps us or hurts us. I think one is just a simple thing that does the anatomy change. And so we're always hesitant, you know, we design our radiation based on a simulation CT scan and everything is based on sort of the, the, the that map and we aim our radiation, we're focusing everything down and the push is to be sort of as focused as possible. And so the fear is always that just if the anatomy changes at all, we could be completely missing. You know, if, if a stent is put in and sort of straightens out the airway, perhaps that shifts a lesion up or down a little bit and then and we're missing. So I think that's why for that, I think the simplest thing is that we just always make sure that the stent is placed before we do our simulation or our mapping and to just be aware that there's no shifting of the stent um, along as, as we're going doing treatment. Mm -hmm. That's pretty easy because we're generally getting sort of at least x-rays on a daily basis where we'll very simply and obviously see if the stent has moved, but it's just something to be aware of. So that's the sort of simpler aspect. Uh, the dosimetric do, do aspect, so do the stents actually change the way the radiation works? Slightly, but probably not significantly enough. You know, generally the way our treatment planning systems work, they'll account for the sort of density of the material and adjust based on that. So it usually doesn't change the dosimetry drastically that we have to worry about it. Um, and, and it doesn't really seem to be create, there was some worry that it might create hot spots in certain areas, but at least from what we know, it doesn't seem to, seem to do that. So I think it's perfectly safe and, and comfortable. The one exception to that is with the proton radiation, where the physics is a little different and there's that more drastic dose fall off. There are situations where metal objects can interfere or that they don't have the ability right now to calculate as well. Um, so that's the only caveat on that side. Okay. Again, we rely daily on sort of daily imaging to make sure we're exactly on target. And when there's a stent in place, if the stent isn't moving, it's very easy to see on x-ray and it's a very easy target to make sure that we're, everything is exactly on, on sort of on exactly on target each day for treatment. This, this is an issue obviously with uh, metal, right? Silicon should not, unless it changes the anatomy, of course. A migrating yeah. silicon stent should not have any effect on uh, radiation planning. Exactly. Even the migrating a migrating metal stent, I won't. I wouldn't worry is changing the those symmetry drastically. Personally, I'd be more worried about the anatomy changing in terms of our, is our, our is our target lesion moving at all. Mm -hmm. So let's say a patient's undergoing radiation treatment, and um, I place a stent uh, during the radiation uh, treatment. And I uh, inform you guys saying that, hey, I put a new stent in. I'm not sure how much the anatomy would have changed. Do you guys routinely plan again 
And how inconvenient is that? Is, is that an extra session for the patient? I just want to understand what harm we're doing here. Yeah, typically, you know, we would then want to replan unless it's sort of very far, very low risk that the anatomy has changed. We would generally replan. Usually it's relatively simple where we would, you know, the patient would probably miss at least one day of treatment where they, we would have to do a re-simulation, so a new CAT scan. Mm-hmm. We would use the same setup, exactly the same treatment position, but just a new scan. And then we would apply the old plan onto the new plan and make sure that nothing has changed drastically before we sort of proceeded. So sometimes they would miss one fraction, sometimes not even that, depending on sort of how efficient things move along. Perfect. Thank you so much, Robbie. This has been fantastic. Uh, Is there anything else that you would like us to know or want to share with us? No, I mean, the only... Other thing that, you know, I forgot to mention with in terms of the sort of SBRT versus RFA versus the other, you know, I think there's always a hesitancy in terms of there's a lot of good quality, even if it's not randomized control data for SBRT that's continuously and long term. And so I'd encourage as much as possible as we develop these new methods to do them in the context of a sort of prospective study where we can really study and and look at the long-term outcomes in a very quantitative manner so that we can compare. I think it's not realistic that we're going to be able to do these randomized trials of these uh, of a lot of these interventions, but as much as we can collect high-quality data, that's when we can start to have confidence in using them instead of a standard of care like SPRT. Absolutely. You completely echo my thoughts on that. Thank you so much for your time and take care. No problem. Thanks. Thank you.